Good evening, everyone. I'm Hilda L. Solis, Supervisor for the First District and Chair of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. On behalf of Zocalo, Public Square, and the Natural History Museum of LA County, I'd like to welcome you to our discussion. What are today's LA women fighting for? What I can tell you is that there is a new era right here in LA County. With the election of Senator Holly J. Mitchell, Los Angeles County will now have five women representing each of the five supervisorial districts. This is history, or better yet, her story. Her win is historic and will make a difference in so many areas for girls and women everywhere, especially those in public service and seeking to run for office one day. This demonstrates that no one dream is too big. We've shattered the glass ceiling right here in Los Angeles County, and we're a good role model for the rest of the country and an example for the world. Women are rising. Women are rising to demand justice for all people. It is what we do best. And when women succeed, we all win. However, this pandemic has had a significant impact on women, especially women of color. Black and Latinx women make up the majority of both essential workers and the unemployed. One in every three jobs held by women has been deemed essential, and women of color are more likely to have essential jobs. Often underpaid and undervalued, women dominate in frontline jobs, ranging from grocery store workers to government workers to healthcare workers. During the COVID-19 pandemic, women, especially women of color, have cared for our children, the elderly, and the sick. While part of an invisible workforce, women keep our country running and care for those most in need of assistance. As the only woman of color on the Board of Supervisors and a Latina, it has been important for me to address the COVID-19 pandemic through an equity lens, prioritizing communities of color that have been underserved and underinvested for far too long, many from the first district which I represent. I've advocated for resources to support our families and our seniors hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic fallout that is followed by expanding rental assistance, food programs, childcare vouchers, and bridging the digital divide. It's not always easy, but I persisted in the face of challenges and insisted on building a better future for women and their families to overcome this pandemic. That has been my driving force on the LA County Board of Supervisors and throughout my entire career in public service. From serving on the Rio Hondo College Board of Trustees to the California State Assembly and Senate and to the Congress and as United States Secretary of Labor for President Barack Obama the first Latina ever to hold a position in the United States cabinet. And along the way, I've seen the strength and resilience of women. From colleagues, staff, and community members, I've seen women fighting for the good fight, for working class families, education, housing, access to healthcare, environmental justice, and equality, for the value of life itself. Many thanks to Zocalo, Public Square, and the Natural History Museum for convening this incredible discussion, which will be moderated by Angel Jennings, the Assistant Managing Editor of the Los Angeles Times. She oversees culture and talent, where she tracks, recruits, and interviews job candidates, and is leading the Times' effort to promote diversity, equity, inclusion, and access. Thank you for being here, Angel. Now, over to you. I'm excited to be moderating a conversation with an incredible group of women who have worked to make Los Angeles a stronger city. Here with us this evening, we had Senator Maria Elena Doranzo, who represents Senate District 24, which includes much of Los Angeles and East Los Angeles and the California State Senate. She's been fighting for decades to make, the li make lives better for workers and immigrants. And is not only seen as a leader, but a major force in the labor movement. She was the first woman elected as secretary treasurer of the LA County Federation of Labor and helped build it into a political and economic powerhouse. In addition to her union work, Maria Elena has served on many commission and boards. Connie Rice is a civil rights lawyer and the co-founder and co-director of the Advancement Project. She has won more than 10 billion, that's billions with a B, and damages that has resulted in policy changes felt throughout LA today. She has made a career out of suing agencies and organizations. Her class action lawsuits have addressed police misconduct, race and sex discrimination, transportation, probation, and public housing policy. She has policed police, investigating the LAPD, helped counsel gang truce, and served as former President Barack Obama's task force on 20th century policing. 
Connie has won over 50 awards for her work advancing equity and opportunity. Judy Baca is a muralist and activist. She's the founder and artistic director of the Social and Public Art Resource Center, which began in 1974 as LA's first mural program. Her artwork and art initiatives reflect the lives and concerns of historically disenfranchised people, such as women, the working poor, youth, the elderly, and immigrant communities. Her most well-known work is the Great Wall of Los Angeles, a half mile mural in the San Fernando Valley, and it's on the National Registry of Historic Places. She's also a professor emeritus at UCLA. Christine Margiato is the executive director of the Philanthropy Network Social Venture Partners Los Angeles. She has worked to create progress in areas includes homelessness, education, racial and economic justice, and LGBTQ rights. She was previously the vice president of community impact at United Way of Greater LA, where she designed, launched, and directed Home for Good, the region's, initi the region's initiative to end homelessness. Thank you all for being here. And big thanks to Sokola Public Square and the National History Museum for hosting us. Let's get started with our amazing panel of powerful women. We're in an incredible moment in history. The first female president, first female vice president, I'm sorry, was just elected last month. The five members who make up the LA County Board of Supervisors, who once considered the five little kings, now all sit are now are all now all five seats will be held by women. Despite the political strides, we are still fighting for so much. I want to start off by asking Maria Elena, what do women need right now and how do we fight for what we need? Well, what women need is for our value, the value of our work to be recognized, the value of our work to be given the adequate resources that they deserve uh, for doing that work. Uh, value our work as women who produce our clothes and our garments, value the work of women who take care of our children, value the work of women who take care of our elderly and our sick, as nurses, as teachers, we could go on and on and on. That work needs to be valued. It needs to be given the proper resources so that our entire uh, community of families flourish instead of get deeper and deeper and deeper into poverty. Christine Margiato, would you like to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I so appreciate the Senator's reflections on value. And, and I also think about power. Uh, I think about, see, you're, you're reflecting on these seats of power that women are sitting in. You know, when, when women lead, they put the needs of our communities at the center. And so when women, when women fight, they fight for the needs of the whole community. So I would say what, what women need are, are seats of power. I hear both of you guys connecting the dots between power and valuing our work. And we're in these unprecedented times where the pandemic has really reshaped so many of our lives, particularly the lives of women, many of whom have had to sh shoulder the burden, the unprecedented burden that has caused by this pandemic. Would you like to talk a little bit more, Christina, about like some of the ways in which women have like stepped up and shouldered more of the burden during this time? I, I see that in so many places across our community. I'm I'm a mom of two young kids. I, I know you are. Uh, you have a young child as well, Angel. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Uh, and in this time, you know, I see so many of my my peers and colleagues holding their families together. You know, juggling childcare and work and homeschooling, uh, caring for aging parents. Uh, I've thought a lot about my my mom during this time who lives alone you know there's there's so much uh on our shoulders during this time and i've found it's it's brought into sharp focus what are the most important things in our lives and in our communities and and for me has uh inspired me to fight harder for our communities and judy you've done some of this work in the space of art and using art to highlight some of the inequities and in ways that we can highlight under unseen women in the community. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, I, I, yes, I mean, the, the, um, the capacity to, to tell the story of those people who are undervalued, uh, to elevate uh, their achievements into the, into the public consciousness has been pretty much my life's work. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I, that I've just had the experience of doing, which was just a remarkable and overwhelming experience of of curators from Mexico sending me messages that they began to do a quilt. And this quilt was being done in embroidery by different women. And so they started making calls for people to do them. And it was, we thought, maybe 100 pieces, maybe 
that was going to be a lot. Well, we received over uh, 600 works uh, came, coming from all over the world. And what we began to see was the tremendous impact that the pandemic had had on domestic violence and on the experiences of, of, of women fighting back against uh, their degradation, uh, the, the femicides that have been going on internationally. So everyone joined. It was just from every corner of the United States and also from Latin America. And uh, we actually could not hope open the show, but we put it on the streets uh, in big giant printouts. And so people could drive through our patchwork healing, our healing quilt. Uh, and women were joining together and do what they, doing what they do best, um, supporting and healing and communicating. Wow, Judy, that just gave me chills. Like the quiet ways women are trying to push back in their home lives when they're stuck in home because of a pandemic and might be facing, you know, violence behind closed doors. Uh, how can people send you more of these quilts? Is this still an option to be able to take part in this? Absolutely, we're still receiving them. And um, at some point, the real physical pieces will be here. But at the moment, they're, um, uh, they're, they're, they're sending them in virtually. So we can, you can do that through SPARC, that's S-P-A-R-C, sparkinla.org. And uh, people come, you can go into a virtual gallery and see those works online. And what is really remarkable is that the youngest ones who've made these quilts uh, are like young girls, eight years old, seven mm. years old, and the oldest in their 90s. That's just heartbreaking. I mean, it, things we don't even think about during the pandemic. Um, Connie, can you talk to me a little bit more about how you fought to make sure that there are laws and policies in place to value this work, even when we, we have women who are in the workforce and there's a price tag equated to their work. There's still so many headways we need to make as far as equal pay. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah, Angel, we're, we're, we're falling further behind. Some of the lawsuits that I did 30 years ago, I couldn't file today. The standards have been weakened, watered down, diluted. Um, Voting Rights Act has been completely gutted, for example. Uh, the MTA case, which ended up in the biggest settlement in civil rights history, uh, basically fighting for transportation, accessibility, affordability, and um, reliability for very poor people who are dependent on public transportation. Um, uh, a lot of those standards have slipped. So um, it, it's, it's I'm, I'm, the laws, I wish we had the luxury of, of thinking about laws right now. Um, and, and I think that the, my amazing colleagues on this, on this panel, our instinct is to help those with the least. And the women who have the least are our are, are poorest underclass women, poor black women, poor Latinas, uh, uh, poor immigrant women. Um, and, and in the Antelope Valley and rural uh, uh, California, poor white women, um, folks at the bottom of the well, those women have lost everything. Uh, they were food insecure before the pandemic. They're, they're, they're now food desperate. So if, if you're talking about the women at, at, on the bottom rungs, um, they're facing ca catastrophe, um, whether, it's, whether it's, it's dodging ice or whether it's, it's, it's losing the only job um, in the family. And you're, you're contemplating homelessness and hoping that your car, uh, you can sleep four children in your car. So while, 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 while women like me have actually done quite well in the pandemic, because we have Zoom and we're, we're doing these kinds of, we have the technology, we have the security, um, and we ha we've barely missed a beat um, and are, are ordering designer masks to match our outfits. Mm. And so, so I, I'm, I'm always, I don't mean to, you know, be so class conscious, but, but it's, it's the women, the, the women we really need to desperately galvanize all of our power to help. Because if you help lift the very bottom, mm. you'll reach the working class, you'll reach the middle class. And um, you, you um, at the same time, you have to hold on desperately to the rights and the, and the, the, the laws that you have. Uh, labor unions have just been so weakened. Um, without the labor movement, I mean, my grandfather worked for Bethlehem Steel. They, they paid him in spam and toilet paper before wow. the union stepped in. The black steel workers were not included in the pay scale. And so um, 
you look at you look at the distribution of public wealth up. We took the upward mobility rungs in the upward mobility ladder out, and our business has got to be to help the people at the bottom to recover from this pandemic. The women who can't even feed their kids now and who are standing in line uh, for for handouts from LAUSD. Those are the women who've got to receive our attention, and I'm hoping that the supervisors, the, 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 the five queens, empresses, are going to get uh, turbocharged uh, from the bottom up rescue. And then we can stabilize and start to build the infrastructure, the childcare, the transportation, the job infrastructure that we have defunded the community mm. with. We, we need to refund Pacoima and East LA and Watts and Maywood and Linwood, all of the pockets of poverty where women really are hanging on by a thread. Oh, Connie, you brought some good points in that last, your last remark. It seems like the pandemic really has just like split us so many in society into like have and have nots. It really it truly exposed the inequality in education and food scarcity. And I know um, Senator Deranza is actually working on measures and legislations to help address some of this. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Thank you, Angel. And um, I'm really glad that um, my sister Connie raised that issue. I was on a briefing yesterday about farm workers in the Central Valley um, and the percentages of the extreme percentages of what they're not getting that they need. This, this statistic just stuck to me and I can't get it out of my mind. 40% of the farm workers in this survey, 40% do not have access to a washing machine. Think about that. In this day and age, they are so isolated. They are so out there without access to resources that they do not have access to a washing machine. Not that they don't have a washing machine in their home. They don't have access to a washing machine. The, the percentage of farm workers that are working with COVID, working with the symptoms of COVID because they are so afraid that they will be fired. That's what that's what they're facing, and yet they're the ones who put the food on our table. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Uh, I have a bill which I plan to reintroduce: environment worker protection, because there is so much wage theft that not only hurts them and their families. There's something like um, of a of a total wage theft of twenty six million dollars a week. Most of that is from the garment workers, garment worker industry. Imagine what that would do to their, for their families, for their communities, for our tax base, if they were paid what they need. So I hope I will introduce, reintroduce their bill. And I hope that we get all the support and the governor's signature to help them just get what they earn, not more than minimum wage, just minimum wage, not a third of minimum wage, just minimum wage. We talked at, so for some times about things that we need and where we need to make advancements. Can you talk a little bit to me about where areas we're making changes? Maybe Judy, you wanna start off with that question? What areas are we making changes as women? Well, I think, I think we're actually seeing, I'm seeing something within a kind of radical feminism that's going out through Latin America. And uh, um, and I'm getting word from these young women who are carrying out actions that maybe people would not think were good actions. I mean, they're vandalizing monuments. Um, they're, uh, they're doing kind of, um, uh, they're acting like brujas and they're starting fires. They're, uh, they're, they're chanting and they're scaring men um, as they go into these giant uh, gatherings. And what I think they're looking for is they're looking for a way uh, to take a radical position for women. And, and that's in light of the feminicides, in light of them not enforcing laws to keep them from being murdered, uh, not prosecuting people who hurt them. And, uh, and I have to say that, you know, it is that radical group, these radical groups that will force others in, in power to actually listen to the more moderate voices at some point. But um, I'm really kind of, I was kind of shocked and amazed by it. And they are also, uh, many of them within the arts, they're performative, they're visual artists, 
uh, they're using methods of expression, and uh, many of them are also thinking about methods of healing that are traditional indigenous healing methods. So uh, um, I'm pretty excited about that in terms of seeing women stand up. And I think we also saw it across the country in the Black Lives Matter movement, mm. where we saw all these young people step up, even though it was really dangerous from they were going out you know, in these massive groups and uh, irregardless, knowing that they, you know, they were taking risks, uh, they were marching, and they did not stop. And I just kept waiting for it to end, and like thinking, you know, is it will they will they lose heart? Uh, but instead of losing heart, it gained momentum, and that to me was uh, another place that I think we can take a great deal of hope. People are activated; they're on their feet, and now we have to have them move in the right direction. I love that you connected the dots with Black Lives Matter. I was just thinking the same thing where you were talking about the radical feminism that was taking hold in Latin America. Because six, seven, eight years ago, when Black Lives Matter was first formed, it was that statement alone, Black Lives Matter, it was very radical. And it was a women's-led movement that got these words on the tongues of everybody across America. So now we're at this point where it's now it's not as radical. It's actually commonplace to say Black Lives Matter. And it's a movement that's also led very much in a feminist way. What does that mean to have feminism at the forefront of movements such as Me Too and Black Lives Matter and so many other? I'm gonna, uh, Maria Elena, would you mind addressing that? Because I know you've been at the forefront of so many movements. <coughs> well, we know that when women, for example, coming out of the hotel and food service worker industry, all these housekeepers and uh, women in that industry, you know, when, when they went to battle with these big corporations for higher wages and um, what they deserved, they were doing it keeping in mind their, their whole family. Not that men don't think mm -hmm. about their family, but they brought that kind of um, a, a different kind of a passion um, they took leadership. They're extremely courageous. They bring um, a, a, just a different sense of what this is all about. It's not a macho man thing. It's about the community. It's about the family. And um, so I got my my all my moments, all my days and months of um, feeling the courage was from them. And you know. Uh, they have more to fear than I did. They have a lot more to fear, a lot more at risk, but, you know, they, they, they stood up for it. And so I think that is a really important uh, thing that we need. We need that uh, in our courts. We need that, you know, in, as governors. We need that as a president. We need that in all levels and, and not only at the levels um, at the levels of activism, but also in all of these, I think Christine mentioned uh, uh, decision making positions. Uh, and and also, you know, Art, I just want to make a connection with with Judy. One of the, the first project I ever did in reaching out about how to connect art with people in struggle, like uh, um, these house hotel housekeepers, and uh, asked her, and she met with these with these women. And she came up with this extraordinary idea for a mural. And that was that the hotel housekeeper, a beautiful woman, was in this mural taller than the hotel's buildings themselves to project their power, to project their um, feminism, to protect and project everything about that, to say they are bigger, better, more valuable than these fancy hotel buildings. So, you know, um, connecting, how do, you, how do you explain all of this? You can see it in one mural and it says it's worth, you know, millions of words. So I, I really appreciate all of our sisters here in, in talking about this and connecting these dots. Connie, would you like to expand on that a bit? I know that you've also been involved in a lot of movements as well. How does the, how, when we, when we put feminism at the forefront of movements, how does that shape and change how we galvanize and act and, and are active and pushing for change? I find that when women, whether you're talking about female officers or female leaders in any kind of uh, sector, be it even litigators, um, uh, the, 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 the I, on the prize is different. Uh, it's more for solving the problems 
of people beyond yourself. It's not about your own personal power. And it's not about the, the intrigue of, of who gets to be speaker and who gets, and it's, it's, it's about solving problems for people who just need help speaking for themselves and who, who, aren't, who are kind of written out of the script, uh, gerrymandered out of power, uh, a, a completely ignored, invisible LA. Uh, you know, there, there, there are worlds within worlds here. LA is a third world city because of the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And it's just gotten bigger with this pandemic. And I think that if, if women can make the demand that people have the basics, just the basics, the rich have to get richer at a slightly slower pace, you know? We're not asking them to give up their advantage. We're just asking, you can't sustain the contract between government and community when 40% of the community is left at the bottom of the well without the basics. And I'm, I'm talking about very, you know, just the basics, uh, food, shelter, uh, safety. You have nothing without safety. And if you can't provide the basics, you're not gonna be able to maintain the social contract. And I would, I, I, I would like to echo uh, the, moment, the, the hope I have is when I see these young movements, uh, Black Lives Matter, which was uh, not just black women and, and Latina women, but lesbian, you know, this, this was intersectional. It was LGBTQ um, and, and other uh, kinds of movements melted together. And when um, uh, you have the Dreamers, you have that movement, you have uh, the Parkland shooters, the anti-gun violence. So you, and, and I mean, these, these, these folks are organizing themselves online. Um, I can't even manage my email, but they, 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 they take hashtags and turn them into international movements. Okay, my hat's off. They get a standing ovation from me. <laughs> the question is how, and one of them asked me, how do you go from protest to power, Connie? Mm. How do you go from protest to power? And um, I had to, I, I said, I, I said, that's to translate that kind of power that you demonstrated in the street into the policies, you're going to have to master the machinery and do jujitsu on the political machinery because the power machinery is not made for us. It's not made for people who are trying to turn that power infrastructure to benefit the people that it's really designed to exclude. And so you have to turn it inside out and um, you have to do things that, 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 that aren't really a lot of fun to do. I had to stop litigating. If you want to change the police, you can't do it from the outside. You have to go inside and help them change their mindset and change their mission. Um, it, it, we diagnose the problem in a wrong way. We often don't understand the DNA of a problem. We, we, we send brain cancer patients to the hairdresser all of the time and, and miss the real, the real disease. And so um, a country that's great with denial and remaking its image and forgetting its history and doing gone with the wind on very serious issues, just pretending it never happened you know, and that there is no, there's none of this. I mean, we just, we just, women kicked out a misogynist, a racist, a fascist. Women of this country just did that. We may not agree on much else, uh, and 70 million people were quite okay with white nationalism, with, with um, vicious misogyny. I mean, I, I, no wonder they need so much money. They have, to have, they have to have a budget for their porn stars and their mistresses. I mean, it's just, just outrageous. <laughs> the Me Too movement, um, you, you were mentioning that, connecting the dots between the folks at the bottom and, and, and those of us who, who, yes, the casting couch is a terrible thing. It's a rape culture in, in, in Hollywood. Um, and that fund should have first been designed to help the janitors who are isolated in these buildings and face rape almost every night. You know, I, I don't know how many of the cases that fund helped like that, but there wasn't the, the organization to focus on that echelon of women. Um, I can defend myself. I've got a black belt. I, you know, I, I put men in the hospital. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm powerful enough to protect myself. And if they're stupid enough to mess with me, they don't recover. I have that kind of power. Making sure that other women are equally protected, I think, is hard to do when you're thinking about your own situation. You're thinking about yourself. That's natural. 
and you're thinking about the women that you see every day, it's hard to think about people who are invisible. And you don't want to appoint yourself as their savior, but you've got to be aware enough of, of the, the catastrophe that they face. You may face an inconvenience or some slight discrimination. They're facing annihilation. Mm, and until, good. You know, until we cluck into that and bring them with us, mm. and then together we can actually get women compensated. Maria Elena, not just for the work that they do, but for all the work we do that we're not compensated for, which is about $1.2 million when you take chauffeur, cook, you know, all, you know, medical organizer, you know, all the stuff we do to keep our families going and healthy and hopefully thriving. That's 1.2 million a year. There ought to be a, a national fund to compensate women <laughs> for that work. <laughs> Amen, Connie. And on that, you, you talked about pr turning the protest movement into power. So many of us are galvanizing the streets and we have elected people who are in power now, women who are in like high positions. We have Kamala, who's now about to be the vice president, maybe one day even the first female president. And we have the women who make up the board of supervisors now. What do we want from our female politicians? Can we tell them directly right now what we expect of them right as they're about to like get into power? Yes, set an agenda that creates unlikely alliances. Maria Elena, you do this in the labor movement. You do it in, in, in political uh, situations. Uh, Judy, you do it through art. Uh, you know, Christine, you've got, you've got multiple worlds. You've got to knit together um, and seeking relief for all kinds of, of, of factions. Um, women in power, it, it's, it's not about our ideology. I have to check my ideology at the door. I have to look for the solutions that help the most people. And I'll tell you, the most progress I've made is with Republicans, uh, people I've sued. I've sued more Democrats than Republicans. But, but the people who you think can't help you, Karen Bass does this brilliantly in Congress. She talks with some of the, you know, you have to take a Valium to listen to some of the views. And you just have to bite a hole in your cheek not to slap them, right? But you got, you got to sit at the table and you got to bargain, okay? <laughs> and and you've got to you've got to frame the agenda in terms they can accept because we're not the majority. Numerically, we're the majority, but in terms of power, we power. are not. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have that power, you have to use other people's power to augment yours. And as as you were saying earlier, this is particularly hard in in this polarized time, but it can be done. And I see people like Karen, I see people like Kamala, I, I, I see politicians who are savvy enough to be able to talk to their opponents and actually turn them around, give them a win. You know, you can't, you can't talk about it in your terms. You have to talk about it in the terms that they can accept. And that's Christine, hard to do. Can you expand on that a little bit and talk about it? Because I know that you're in the space where you're helping with our homelessness problem and like women are on the street too. And we're at risk when we're on the street. As you have these politicians about to take office, the board of supervisors, they're in charge of billions of contracts and they're working to end homelessness. What do you expect from your politicians? I expect them to use what's in front of them. There's $1.4 billion sitting in a homeless fund that none of them has used yet. There, Caltrans has empty houses. They won't even let the homeless live in. I mean, these agencies, the power, the stuff that is left on the table, it's a crime. Mm. I'm talking about resources that have been allocated, the mental health uh, pot. You know, over a billion dollars sat there for five years and didn't get allocated or put through any kind of program. You know, that, that to me is malpractice. So you've got a lot there. If you just took the programs that they can't tell you what the money goes for and what it produces and amalgamated that, I estimated at one point in the county that you're talking about $3 billion just in gang programs that have the word gang in them and they can't tell you what they do. <laughs> you take that $3 billion and you repurpose it to a program that is strategic, organized according to the data and the best theories, organized with community members who can tell you where that money needs to go, you've got something. That's what we did with GRID. It's what we did to change at least the top of LAPD so that it's not Daryl Gates running it anymore. But I had to learn to talk to cops. I could talk civil rights. I sued these guys. I, I always introduced the chief as, I like Charlie Beck the first time I sued him. Well, I had to make him a partner and he had to make me a partner. We both had to change. But the thing that we were focused on was solving the problem, which was reducing violence, 
cease the humiliating policing that debases poor people of color in their communities, stop the search and destroy mass incarceration policing, and switch it to a public health frame, wrap around safety and partnership. Change the paradigm, change the mission, change the entire frame of the discussion, and you can bring people who are your opponents in. But if you keep in that hamster wheel, that stuck on stupid hamster wheel of just pointing guns at one another and shooting one another and calling each other names, you're not doing anything for anybody. That's not power. It may feel good, but you're not producing anything for people. So from protest to power means a learning a very uncomfortable game that personally isn't as satisfying as vindicating your feelings. Not about your feelings. It's about getting something done for people who desperately need it. Thank you for that. And Christine, I know that you ran recently for the um, Claremont City Council. You were one, there was eight people running for two spots and you, you were the only woman in that race. Can you talk about that? I know you've been working with homeless initiatives, but when you try to turn your activism into power, what were some of the obstacles you faced? Yeah, I've, I'm so appreciating this conversation about uh, protest to power because that was it was so much of where our campaign for city council came from. I never anticipated running for office and living through this pandemic. And I, I live in Claremont, which is the town I grew up in, and living through this pandemic in this time, and then witnessing our city's response to the, our country's reckoning with racism and, and anti-Black racism over the summer and realizing uh, that we were, we have so much work to do here on the local level. And in the midst of all of that, we watched our city increase our budget for law enforcement. Our, our law enforcement budget here in Claremont is 52% of our budget and decrease our human services funding. Uh, so Connie, you use the term refund and defund. We were talking about that a lot here locally that you know we have been defunding human services for years, for decades in this community and we continue to do so in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, so I was, I was aware that our current council is 80% is men here in our city. And, and as you said, I was the only woman uh, running for council it was a an incredibly eye-opening experience uh, just to hear uh, the way people talk to women running for office. Uh, that's for a whole other conversation. Uh, oh, I, I want to hear some of it. What, are they, <laughs> what did they say? Uh, you know, just some of the questions that I got. You know, are are you sure you can handle this? You have two young kids. Are you are you sure you can juggle all this? Or Oh, I don't know if Christine's ready to handle a budget that size. Uh, when I was the the only candidate in my district who had managed a budget the size of of our city, uh, you know, getting unsolicited feedback on on my appearance or the language that I used, uh, there are just ways that uh, that I was spoken to that I am certain my male counterparts were not. Uh, but I'm also just so incredibly proud of the campaign that we run. We were, we were so intentional about building, building a coalition that was multiracial, that was intergenerational, that reflected this community that spanned the political spectrum. Uh, as others have noted, that the importance of this bipartisan work, and and how much we thought about not only what we were fighting for, but how we were fighting and thinking about how we wanted to lead and how we wanted to center the voices of our community members who are most impacted in this pandemic and, and in the injustices that are in this community that are all across this region. Uh, so the how was a big part of our, our conversations on the campaign. And, and though we were not successful in, in gaining that seat on city council, our, our longtime incumbent retained his seat. Uh, I really believe that we changed the conversation about what's important to this community and about and about how we how we go about making change in the community about what matters uh what matters to our residents you know we heard housing justice we heard climate justice and we heard racial justice in policing those were the three big issues that came up again and again and again and and my hope is that that now becomes unarguable in the conversations on our council moving forward I love how you talked about like, even though you didn't win that seat, you did shift the conversation. And that's some of the ways that 
you know, we're making changes in, in LA and, and across the country. I want to ask this question to Judy. In what ways do you think women are shaping LA and the nation in other ways besides um, protesting? Well, I keep, as I hear all these pieces, I keep coming back, maybe I'm, I, I feel like I'm out in left field and maybe that's where I belong, right? Floating mm -hmm. in the sort of the area of- I love your perspective. Of dreaming. And what I'm, what I'm, what I'm clear is that uh, over and over again is that we're connected really to the larger issues. We're the progenitors of life as women and that we're connected to what is happening to the earth. And that is why we're, while we're destroying the earth, we are totally willing to rape and mutilize and brutalize women in a much greater level because it's all part of the same thing. In other words, we have to change consciousness as a whole, as, as givers of life, as keepers of life. I mean, I don't know about the rest of my colleagues on this uh, panel, but I certainly have been in enough meetings in which the meeting had to be stopped because we didn't have adequate childcare and we, somebody had to go and take care of a crying baby. And, and, and in fact, in those meetings where women were leading, everybody had to pay to, everybody paid attention. Uh, and, and we were making sure that people had food and there was a, there was a kind of a, a, a caregiving that occurred. And um, this brings me right to one of the areas that I'm, uh, I have been focused on, focused on for so many years. And we are in a position where, with leadership, we could say, take some of those resources that, that Connie so lovely, so well pointed out to us, and let's not take youth and put them in prison, and you know, which is like something like fifty thousand dollars a year, the the price of going to Harvard. Uh, for writing on a wall, we can take those kinds of monies and redirect um, young people, redirect our, 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 our unemployed, and we can rebuild America. We can rebuild our city. Our city is, a, I don't know if you've been driving around at all, but it is absolutely devastating to see the condition of the city of Los Angeles. And I just keep thinking, give us brooms and mops and let's clean it up. You know, like, let's give people jobs. Let's make a new WPA. Let's take all those youth who've written on walls and give them an opportunity to be artists and to, to, to create public works and artworks that speak to their own experiences so that you get to hear those voices that, is, that have been so profoundly silenced. So, you know, we're, we're in a moment, you know, where we should say on a national level, we need a new Works Progress Administration to build the infrastructure of America, and that we need to look at artists and look at all kinds of workers and put them to work for the greater good. And in Los Angeles, we have a great opportunity. Uh, we were once the mural capital of the world. That was destroyed by bad leadership in our city council and by very greedy billboard companies that decided that mm. they would proclaim the billboards murals. And in order to deal with the billboard uh, uh, the, the advertising interest, they put a moratorium on murals. And at the same time, they destroyed a legacy of 30 years of work of ethnic communities, of communities of color. And we lost something like 60% of the legacy of Los Angeles murals. Let's put them back on the street. Let's put these kids to work. Let's take the kids who are we're putting in jail and give them jobs. This is simple stuff. And kind of, you know where the money is. <laughs> yeah. Judy, that you bring up an interesting point. I listen, was listening to a podcast recently um, by, it was by Walter Hernandez. I actually interviewed him for our book club at the LA Times. And he had a very, like, so evocative um, episode where he talked about um, being in a juvenile center with someone who was really big into um, graffiti. And he was at that moment too. And it just was like, wow, this is artwork. Why are we punishing young kids and setting them on a path that is one that could end up in like a pathway to prison over artwork? Um, I want to ask you, Maria Elena, same question. How are women in LA shaping policy and changing how we think about and do things differently? Well, I, I want to say something where we aren't helping mm. to shape, and that's in the media. Oh. We're, we're we need far, far more uh, women to be in the leadership of media and how communications is done in this country. Um, 
maybe because I'm not as good uh, on this social media stuff as our, our younger generations are, but it seems to me when, when really critical issues are narrowed down into, well, you can't say more than something, a hundred characters or something like that. Then there's this battle in, you know, in, in, uh, paragraphs or pieces of 100 characters here and 100 characters there versus where's the real where's the real communications here that we should be that we should be uh, engaged in and how are we describing all the issues that are going on which then um, because of that pressure um, I see in the elected uh, officials arena it's like okay I got to do something that's going to make me look good quickly Quickly, Ooh. I got to say something and I got to do something because there's this constant pressure uh, of uh, are you saying, are you doing something for the quick, um, you know, the quick and easy hit. Um, and I think that does a lot of damage to what um, Connie was talking about. Are you really being thoughtful? Are you really getting down deep instead of a rushing to introduce 40 or 50 bills so that you could look good and you could say, I introduced this bill, I introduced that one. Can you focus and say, you're not gonna get more than three bills, but they've gotta be good. They've gotta be thoughtful. You've gotta build a coalition around it. You, you, you really have to think about incarceration in a serious way, in a long-term way versus uh, you know, what's going to uh, get the attention in the media. And I think we need more women who can bring that perspective into the media, uh, into the communications, thinking, thinking broadly. Uh, it's badly needed, badly needed. We need women telling our story. I, I, I like that. Now I'm going to move on to some questions. We have some um, audience members who sent in questions via YouTube. And I want to address this to Christine Margiata. Um, homelessness has been a critical issue here in, in Los Angeles County for women in particular. What is being done to help women on the streets who want to succeed? Who is supporting or helping them? Yeah, I mean, I'll say there are incredible organizations in LA working to support women and families who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, Downtown Women's Center comes to mind uh, as an organization that has that has worked so hard on this issue. Uh, but I'll also say, you know, I think, Connie, you talked about the need to redefine the problem. And, and I think about this a lot when we talk about homelessness, that homelessness is a symptom of so many systems that are, that are I want to say failing, but that are getting the results that they're designed to get, uh, our criminal justice system, our healthcare system, affordable housing, lack of a living wage in our communities, you know, they're there are all these systems that are uh, creating this outcome, this uh, tragedy that we're seeing on our streets. And we, we must continue to intervene in the crisis and to, and to support people who are experiencing homelessness, but we absolutely have to define the problem better so that all of this public will that we're, that we're seeing around ending homelessness is channeled toward ending mass incarceration and ensuring a living wage and creating affordable housing on the scale that we need uh, so that we're not continuing um, to very importantly try to put a Band-Aid on a, on a gaping wound that we've created here in LA and, and of course all across the country. So yeah. great, great organizations on the front lines, but I would also love to see our community supporting the organizations that are also fighting for that policy change uh, on, on all of the issues that I mentioned as well. And if I could just add, uh, uh, ditto to everything you just said, Christine, homelessness, and I, my guru on this is Carol Sobel, who knows the DNA of this problem, the marrow, she knows this issue in and out. Um, homelessness is an income inequality problem. That's what it is. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to solve it. The agencies are absolutely necessary. They're the thousand points of light. But as I always say, a thousand points of light are great in the darkness, but they do not replace the sun. The, if you don't understand this as an income inequality problem, you're not going to solve it. And if you've got day trader politicians who are just doing a star turn to get to their next elected office, they're not there long enough to solve a long-term 
comprehensive, complicated problem. And they're not going to touch it because they're not only do they not know what to do, they're not going to get there to take the bow. So our entire political infrastructure is not designed to solve complex long-term problems. And we have existential problems, climate crisis, where our democracy is falling apart. You know, and, and, and so the basic contract with government and the social compact is, is disintegrating. So if you can't, people, people glom onto what they can handle. You can't glom onto what you, what you can handle. You have to glom onto what the problem requires. And if you don't have the right diagnosis, you're never going to solve it. Uh, you know, these systems, MTA is not a transportation agency. It's a power building agency. They're not there to provide transportation for 96% of their passengers who make $11,000 a year or less and have, don't have a car. That's not what they're designed to do. And they call it a transportation. Healthcare, it's not a healthcare system. It is an insurance profit system. That's what it's designed to do. And Christine said it. These systems do what they're designed to do. But they're given a label. We're wondering why it doesn't work. It's because they are not designed to deliver what we're talking about. Women are the fastest. Women and children are the fastest growing cohort in homelessness. And the politicians, the other thing is we don't understand the level of power that's required. When's the last time we solved an existential threat to everyone? When a problem, a complex problem, reaches an epidemic level of threat to everyone, take our bad air. What did we do? We created a super agency that had the power to solve the problem. It wasn't 88 cities <laughs> doing what God knows what all over the place. No, it wasn't the it wasn't it wasn't the you know the dance of the dunces. It was a concentrated power that devolved from the state that said clean the air. Our profits will depend on it. The health of, the, of this region will depend on it. Solve it. And they didn't have any nimbyism. They didn't have to ask every neighborhood council, can we put a, a homeless shelter in your backyard? No, it went there because that's what the data said. That's what the problem required, the solution required. So you can't ask LASA or these other agencies, don't, don't ask them to solve a huge problem. You're not going to have cons, uh, complementary power to solve it. And I just think we've diagnosed these huge threats in a very stupid way, very short-sighted way. And women have got to get in there and demand the right frame for these issues. Oh, Connie, you made such a good point. Thank you for elaborating on that. Um, the next question, I'm going to open it up to anyone. Um, LA has been consistently doing its worst in COVID stats than any other part of California. How might women be more effective in fighting for public health here? What are we missing in our health infrastructure and how might advocacy address this? Who would like to take this question? How about Maria Elena? <laughs> what do women, what do women need to do on the... How might women be more effective in fighting for public health here? Well, I, I think women will do somewhat of what everybody else has been saying here is where is the problem? Let's fix it and don't dance around it. Um, I'm hoping, of course, I don't want to say that 100% of women will do the right thing, but the chances are certainly a lot better. Um, and I think that the, the, you know, they'll just look at it as, okay, um, if people are getting uh, COVID in the workplace, if, if the spread is through the workplace, then let's dig in and make sure that there's certain rules. And if you're not, like if you're going month after month after month and refusing to implement the health protocols, if you're refusing to allow workers to go home, if you're refusing to do all the things that will work or more likely work. And then in the meanwhile, there's hundreds and hundreds more people in that workplace spreading, getting the uh, COVID. If there are people dying in that workplace because of COVID, then I would hope that the answer would be, let's fix it here in this workplace and in similar workplaces or industry-wide. Uh, I mean, you know, when I see these examples of workplaces like Foster Farms, where there were 400 uh, people in the Livingston facility that got contagious, this was months after they were told by the county health officer what they were supposed to do, very specific, 
didn't do it. Nine people died as a result of that. So uh, I would hope that women would be much more simple to the core. This is what has to be done and implement, make the change. And if not, you know, you pay the consequences. Excite, you know, there are no consequences to that company. Um, and and what Excite did as far as contamination in the community worsened, made it so much worse now with the COVID. So uh, I would say that that's what I expect women women's leadership to deal with. Anyone else like to take that question too? Okay, I can move on to the next one. Probably the most significant leaders on climate in California are two women from Los Angeles, Mary Nichols, the Air Resource Board Chair, who might now run the EPA, and the lawmaker Fran Powley from the San Fernando Valley. But these women are a generation that is in past retirement age. How are women of younger generation leading and changing the fight to reduce and mitigate climate change? Don't don't underestimate their wisdom. You've got you've got a hundred years of experience there, and while youth is wonderful. Youth has energy, youth doesn't often have the answers. So if youth and, and, and the gray hairs like us get together, we'll have something. But you can't duplicate. You don't have time to get the knowledge that they have. So don't dismiss them. Uh, give them your energy, you get the technology. You, the younger folks know all kinds of stuff we don't know, but the younger folks cannot, cannot uh, duplicate the, the, the experience. You put the two together, you have something. Um, on climate change, that's international. And you've got, you've got to think about, you've got to act locally and regionally. Um, we can get our laws here. Let's get out of denial for a start. Women can do that. We're pretty good at that. We, we can't afford the luxury of fantasy and denial. Uh, our kids will die. <laughs> we got to be real. We have to live in the real world. We can't make up some alternative reality. So I, I, I really think the international treaties it, this, this requires, and, and it requires serious behavior change. And women determine what happens in our homes. They determine what happens in our communities and schools. And I think that if we, gave, if we give people a concrete list of actions to take, stop the plastic bottles, stop X, Y, and Z, you know, just at the local level and give people to change the behavior like we did with smoking, um, we can do that within our own power. And then at the level that, that Karen Bass and Senator DeRosso and, and uh, Kamala Harris are at, they can then knit together with the youth movements that know this is their future. We can give them, the, get, be, be the wind beneath their movement. We need to be the wind beneath the wings of the youth movements and, and use the lift of our experience uh, to give them the energy to solve the problems for their future because we're, we're the ones who have handed them this mess. I, I, and, you know, we owe them that much. I just want to underscore that, you know, talking about those heroes that we have, you know, to elevate Greta's story, for example, right. and to make to, to look at the, these young um, people who have taken these stands and to elevate their story. It becomes a model for younger people. And they go, she can do it, I can do it. You know, and I right. think that's part of what we have to propagate. Let's tell those stories that are victories, the ones that people are actually taking real action that become the models for other youth. Thank you, thank you, ladies. That was just a perfect way to end cap a wonderful night. I want you guys briefly to tell me, I'm gonna go and ask each of you one by one, how can viewers help? Like we're, we've been talking for the last hour about what women are fighting for, what we need and how we can support each other and how we can turn protest into power. Closing remarks, 10, 15 seconds. What do you think, how can people, viewers who are watching this help and continue this dialogue? Christine? So what, what immediately came to mind when you said that is, uh, is listening. You know, I feel like we're not asking enough questions of, of one another, being curious enough uh, and, and really centering people who are who are most impacted by the injustices in our community. So centering the voices of, of people of color, of women and non-binary folks in our community, you know, how do we how do we really listen and get curious about what those experiences are 
define what the problem is, as we've been talking about, and then ask, how can I help? Uh, versus, you know, I, I think so often we're quick to jump in with, okay, I've got the solution and I'm going to go. How can we be in service of the powerful movements that are that are already out there? Great. Judy, what do you think? How can we continue this conversation and what can our viewers do, do to, to help? Well, I think it's very important to let women be the authors of their own ideas. In other words, to give women credit where it's due, because very often uh, of the inventions of a woman are like the Gorilla Girls said it best when they said, one thing about being a woman artist that you don't have to worry about is that you will never be the author of your own ideas. So that in other words, people very much just co-op what you, what you do and say. And the way that you can allow women to be the author of their own ideas is get behind them and support them. If you hear something that is coming from women's leadership, maybe even it's a little bit out there, get behind them and, and, and help them uh, prop up the, the work that they're doing and give them a hand. How can I help? Judy, uh, Connie, I'm sorry. What, what are you? What are your thoughts? I think I think the individual actions are incredibly important. They're absolutely crucial. I'm on the other end of that spectrum, which is systems and power. Power map. Define the problem. Get your experts. They will tell you how to solve the problem. Then then muster and galvanize the power to enact those ideas through unlikely alliances that will stick. Um, there's so many things to fix our broken system. Uh, we've got to get the money out of politics. We don't own our politics. The reason you can't get solutions is that uh, uh, we have an oligarchy. We do not have a democracy. We have an oligarchy with elections. And um, until we understand the system that we're in, the system we're in, we're, it's worth fighting for because if we even lose that and go to a fascist sort of white nationalist, reality-denying alternative, none of us, no women are going to survive in that because misogyny will be licensed like, like a Santa Ana wind fire. So we've got to preserve what we have, organize, hold the line on the, on the election that just held. Don't let that crazy insanity go any further than it has. And also, if you can work at the systemic level, I'm talking to the women who who, who, who want to work at the systemic level. It's not to say that's more important than the individual level. It is not. In fact, the systemic work doesn't mean anything unless the individual work is also done. But, but for those of us who, 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 who need to act on, on that, that, that political stage, um, you have got to master the levers of power and policy and understand that the war that we're in is not about policy and fact and law. We have a culture war that if we don't defuse, we're going to lose everything that we've fought for and gained over the last 40 years, 50 years for women. Um, you can't fight uh, a culture war and a fear war and, a, and an emotional rejection of how, you know, one side against the other. You can't fight that with facts and law. I wish you could, because that's what I do. That's not, those aren't the tools we need for that battle. But the tools that we, they are the tools for climate crisis and for figuring out how do you actually engineer anti-black racism and other kinds of isms out of our out of our policies and our laws and the opportunity and to build that upward mobility ladder that's an engineering problem that does require expertise thank you connie and senator Duranzo, can you elaborate what do you think women and others who are watching this can do to make sure that we are getting what we are fighting for yeah, I say jump in and do something. Jump in and join a campaign that's out there. Jump in and start something that maybe is not out there that needs to be done. It's something that's gonna broaden, uh, uh, as others have said, broaden this, this work rather than to stay you know, in, in smaller areas. I'll give example, an, an actress, actor, and entertainer, Maggie Q. She also is a small businesswoman. And she started organizing other garment businesses. They have about 100 now that have joined with the garment workers to say, we need to enforce our labor laws. That's really powerful, because usually it's like butting heads here. And we could give example after example of 
out. New coalitions uh, need to be created. That will give us the strength and the power, not alienate people, bring them together and, and do it in a real way, in a concrete way. And I say, join a campaign, start a campaign, but do something. Don't just sit around and tweet about it. Ladies, I'm just feeling so empowered. You shared so much wisdom and insight and for that I am so grateful. We have to close there. We're out of time for tonight. Thank you very much for the insightful conversation. It's been a pleasure speaking with you all. Thank you as well to Zokola and to the National History Museum of Los Angeles County for presenting this conversation in the series. And to everyone watching live and for your questions, we hope this sparks more conversation. Thank you so much for joining me.